Hey, it's Evo, and this is Three Clips, a Castos original. As always, our goal with Three Clips is to demystify the creative process behind great podcasts and to inspire greater creativity in your work. To help with that, we're turning to a corner of podcasting that's near and dear to my heart, audio drama, or, as the cool kids call it these days, fiction podcasting. The podcast is called The Land Whale Murders, which was written and produced by Jonathan A. Goldberg, a veteran podcaster who was the writer on A Simple Her Story, a show we featured on last week's episode of Three Clips. As the byline reads, The Land Whale Murders is about birders, murders, and a missing whale, set in New York City in 1896. Did I mention this was a comedy? (laughs) Did I need to mention this was a comedy? But of course, it's much more than that, which is why we selected The Land Whale Murders to dissect, not literally, on this episode of Three Clips. Three Clips is a Castos original series. Castos helps podcasters like you host amazing shows and monetize premium content, all within our easy-to-use podcast dashboard. If you're looking for a team to get your next podcast project off the ground, look no further than Castos Productions. Hey, we help make this show, too. Email us, hello, at castos.com with any questions or visit threeclipspodcast.com slash castos for more information. And now, here's my conversation with Jonathan A. Goldberg of the podcast, The Land Whale Murders. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today, Jonathan, because way back in the beginning of podcasting, I cut my teeth on fiction all the way back in 2004. Back then... Fiction in podcasting was mostly, not always, but mostly single narrator work. Usually it was an author narrating their own work, much like you would listen to an audiobook today, but it would be released over a series of episodes, you know, in podcast form. Back then there were a handful, but notable uh, audio dramas, but they were very much in the minority. Well, fast forward 17 years, and almost all fiction podcasts these days are either following or borrowing elements from audio drama. And I'm curious, what do you think predicated that change? Because let's face it, it is a lot easier to do a single narrator piece than put on a full cast audio drama podcast production. Well, for me, it was moving from theater to audio drama, and theater is just as much work for ending up doing something that then sort of goes into the void forever versus audio drama, which sort of stays around. If you can do independent theater relatively inexpensively, though it gets more and more expensive as as we've been doing it. And for about the same price, you can do an audio drama and you have a product that lasts forever that you can really shape and play with. And, and really, you have no bounds with audio. You can really make it about whatever you want. So many people view it as a genre instead of a medium. So they sort of all follow the format of something. And the idea that all podcasts are the same is weird. It'd be like saying like, half hour drama or half hour comedy or an hour drama or the evening news are all the same thing on te- on television because they're all on television but like the fact that everything sort of started following things like serial or any podcast sort of became popular and then everything was like well everything then podcasts are just this and it's very limiting so i think when people started to move into the form and started playing with it and experimenting with it i think even the first audio drama started to sort of follow the format of serial of being faux true crime investigation podcast. And there was a lot of those. Ultimately, you know, and I think like anything, it just starts to expand as more people get involved with it. I think the fact that it is so 
open and there's no real gatekeeping, at least in the sort of the creation. Like anyone can post up to iTunes as long as you like follow the right formats. There's no network execs who are telling you, you can't make this. You can't put this up here. You can't do this. You can really make a show about whatever you want. You can make it, you know, for nobody. You can make it, try to make it all audience. You really can target whoever you want and you can really be as creative and as free as you want. And that's what's sort of really exciting about it is the the limitless possibilities. And it's nice when people are actually doing that versus trying to chase audiences or just chase trends. If you're going to make some kind of like a feature film, even the low micro budget indies are cost 10, 20 times what a, a season of a show on a podcast can cost. From your world of theater, it's roughly, I think you said, the same cost to produce a theatrical onstage presentation for a night as it is to produce a theatrical presentation as a podcast, which lives forever. Yeah, it really is. I mean, with, even if you're doing renting a studio, if you're bringing in actors, I mean, with, when you're doing theater, you tend to need three full weeks of rehearsal, eight hours a day, like six days a week. With certain contracts, you can only do 20 shows and that's it. If you don't get reviewers in the first two, three shows, you're not going to get any attention on your show. It's also limited by geography, by time, by cost. You know, you have to be in that city at that exact hour at that one point in time in the universe to be able to see it. And that's it. And if you miss those three weeks, then the show, all the sets and acting and all that is just gone. And, you know, you can record it, but theater's not really doing, doesn't do that well on video, I've found. Only if it's Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> Even that, it's still, it's just a very <laughs> different thing. You know, again, media, crossing mediums is always difficult, I think, you know, to appreciate, yeah. you know, the differences because they're not designed, you know, for that. Acting, stage acting is very different than film acting. You know, with the podcast, it can build an audience and it can build an audience around the world. And, you know, you don't have to appeal just to like one newspaper in New York City that controls the full flow of theater and <laughs> defines whether your show basically extends or not. Yeah. With Lamwell Murders, everyone records on their own. We don't rent a studio. They all send in their own audio and we mix it all together. I mean, we've rehearsed them independently, but it's all blending from people from around around the world. We have, I think, like three or four different continents. We have actors sending in audio, you know, so it's something that you could never really achieve without a massive, massive budget normally if it was like a film or something all of the clips we're going to play today come from chapter four which is entitled blow hard blowfish now before we play this first clip i want you listening to keep this phrase in the back of your mind as i'm trying to keep in the back of my mind theater of the mind or theater of the imagination because you're going to have to imagine some things as we play this this is the great bird release in this episode very, very beginning of the episode, we've got three main characters, Eugene, Marianne, and Angus have gathered a crowd of onlookers for a bird release. And spoiler, things do not go as planned. And if any of you have any Hitchcockian fears, this is your fair warning to stop listening. Uh, let's get to the birds. So in the immortal words of Shakespeare, what do you read, my lord? Birds, birds, birds. Um, so they, they were supposed to flap. And in a late-cued whoosh, the birds were released. They were confused and upset, and they flew into the air and into trees and into people. It was a terrible sight. People ran in all directions as the birds collided in the air, and even an eagle carried off a small orphan. 
Eugene, Angus, and Marianne took cover under an oak tree as the cops worked to shoo away the birds. Overall, I'd say it was a success. The starlings look really healthy. A dead bird fell beside them. Not that one, but the other 20. It sure happened. That's something. I just wish Hiram was here. Why couldn't he have gotten stabbed to death next week? Not that, not that that's ideal. It'd be best if he wasn't stabbed to death until he was 80 or... I know it was a good speech. We're all emotional. The show mainly follows the four elementals, which are a group of science-minded friends, which is Eugene, Hiram, Angus, and Marianne. Hiram is an oceanographer, and his sister Marianne is a poet. Angus is a botanist, and Eugene is a ornithologist, sort of a, a lover of birds. And he works for the American Acclimatization Society and wants to release all the birds mentioned in Shakespeare into Central Park, uh, partly as a gesture to Marianne, who he has a crush on, but also just in general for the betterment of what he feels is mankind. And that's actually based on a real event where a guy named Eugene Shifflin did release a bunch of starlings into Central Park as part of the American Acclimatization Society. There was a movement at this time to sort of mix and match birds and animals and plants from around the world just to make life more interesting, I guess. And some people say that the reason that we have starlings now and that they're such a destructive species is it actually goes back to this event of him releasing these birds in Central Park in reality. And so that was one of the jumping off points for the show was looking at sort of this weird moment and sort of how it also still ties into things we do in our current history. And playing around with that. So Eugene releases all these birds. They just create havoc. And it's part of just the sort of background noise of these sort of goofy, science-loving weirdos. And uh, Hiram is murdered at the end of the first episode. And they're sort of trying to solve his murder and sort of trying to live their lives and sort of get caught up in the whole mess of New York City in the 1890s. So yeah, so the, that's the bird release. And it goes about as well as you'd expect when you release all the birds message to Shakespeare at once in Central Park, where... They don't belong. So when you originally wrote the script, did you do that to be performed as a podcast audio drama or did it start life perhaps as a thinking it would be for the theater? Um, it did start life originally as a stage production. It actually was a short version of it was produced about 10 years ago in New York. It's very different though, because again, that was about 90 minutes. And since we've expanded it into you know 13 episodes that are about half an hour each. So it was really taking the germ of that idea and really blowing it up. But having worked on a different show that I wrote, uh, Follow the House of Sunshine, which is a musical podcast, which was a whole other <laughs> very complicated issue to create a musical with original songs for every episode, I looked at my sort of back catalog and thought what could be really be expanded and what could really benefit from the form, because I tend to write sort of epic structure theatrical pieces anyway that sort of borrow with big ideas about put I, you know I, I come from the idea that you can put anything on stage that you can really shouldn't ever limit yourself, and I'm not really not really into theater that's just like one room just rich sad people being sad which is a lot of theater unfortunately you look at through the history of theater you know they were they were putting up sort of large epic stories big casts any location because again you can walk on stage and say we're on the moon and the audience goes with you and that's the same with podcasting right you say like here we are on the moon here we are in ancient rome here we are anywhere right you can just create it and the audience you know will go with you at least they'll give you the buy-in until you give them a reason not to buy into it. With this story, sending it in Gilded Age, New York, I get to do sort of historical stuff. I get to run around the city. I get to play with historical figures. I get to play with all different sort of things. Again, the world's your 
oyster in a way with with podcasting that you can really make the world as crazy and big and zany as you want because i mean you can just have a character be like look over there there's an elephant and there's an elephant because that's just what you want to do in this next clip we're going to meet a villain well in as much as a humorous audio drama can actually have a villain that is but still uh, comparatively speaking this is a pretty dark and somewhat evil sounding scene and the dialogue and the sound design i think both really honor that so, so let's hear what we, uh, the audience, are going to learn from this villain. And with that sigh, Lubbins went over to the large sperm whale head behind his desk. He yanked on a velvet rope, which caused the whale's mouth to open, revealing a door. Follow me. Angus and Eugene followed Lubbins into the whale's mouth. On the other side, they stepped out onto an upper catwalk of a processing plant. They looked down in wonder and horror as modern technology quickly tore whales apart and turned them into various products. It was a brutal and amazing display of bloody efficiency. Workers stirred steaming vats of blubber. Others strained flesh or processed oil. Lubbins took a deep breath. Ah, there's nothing like the smell of ambergris and boiling fat. Ew. I thought your processing plant was in Brooklyn. Well, the main whale works is, but I like to keep this little boutique processor here for high-end special batches. Mostly we focus on minka whales here. Reminds me of my beginnings as a baleen boy. When I was knee-high to nothing, I'd go inside the whales and pluck the baleen. That smell sticks to your bone. A thousand times... Gross. A thousand times America. This is our country. This is our national pastime. I earned a nickel for every metric ton of baleen I plucked. I took that nickel and bought half a dime's worth of blubber. I flipped that blubber for a quarter. I used that quarter to buy my first dinghy. I used that dinghy to ferry prostitutes to whalers on long nights. And I used that scratch to buy my first whaling ship. And with that... You earned your fortune. No, I, I went bankrupt. But then I married an heiress. Now I'm the number three whale man in the world. All right, so maybe a little less villain and more dedicated, lucky capitalist, I suppose <laughs> we could say. But what I, what I really liked about that scene is how visual it actually is. Sometimes what works on paper certainly doesn't work when it's spoken out loud, which you've had to deal with that a lot, obviously, writing for theater, sitting around doing table reads. But I'm curious for this one, are there things that work in person, in theater, that just don't work uh, in a podcast? Do, do you find yourself rewriting because it's like, oh, this is just going to be in someone's ears and in their head. There'll be no visual component. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a definitely a different skill. and It's a different thing you're writing for. And I think you always have to think about how people listen to things. And especially with audio drama, especially with podcasts, you know, a lot of times people also multitasking while they're listening. They're not necessarily like, you know, in a theater, theater is one of the most sort of focus you are there in the dark and you're staring at what's on stage and you that's it you don't have your phone out you don't have like a video game or whatever you're doing while you're listening you're not riding on the subway right so i found with the podcast there is a little more hand holding at least at first too to help set up the world there's a narrator character in this that can help set scenes and can help reinforce what's going on there's a little more repetition in some of the dialogue explaining where we are because again too i think humans overall are, are very visual. So again, not having that visual component, which can shorthand so much, especially even on stage, costuming, setting lights, you know, can tell so much of the story. And with this, you know, you have the sound design, you have the music, and that can do a lot. But there is just a different component you have to think about with the audience and really think about how the audience is going to digest this. And it's not that you shouldn't 
reward close listening and people can do repeated listening. And that's what's also beneficial versus theater is people can go back and they can re-listen to it. With the play, once it's done, it's, it's done unless they go see it the next night or something. They can't go back 10 seconds and be like, wait, what What just happened? <laughs> and no rewind. And with the podcast, you can. And, and you can play with that too. And you can play with the idea of payoffs episodes later and people can go back, oh, wait, I think they mentioned that in this episode. You know, so it's sort of working on different tracks where you're trying to reward the listeners listening closely, but the person who's sort of also cleaning and vacuuming while they're listening can also get something out of it too, just on like a surface level. So you're kind of trying to write it so that it can work on these different levels. And at the same time, finding the balance of what makes the most sense artistically, the most sense of what you're trying to get across. And, you know, once it's out in the world, people will get from it, whatever they get from it. And trying to guess that is a little bit of a fool's errand. So it's about what is important to you. According to your website, 73 people appear. Yeah, that's right. As the season one cast. 73, Jonathan. So (laughs) question number one is, what were you thinking? I was thinking that, you know, again, you're not limited. Why not have a big cast? If people, you know, are recording from home and they can record two lines and they want to do it. What I tried to do is I offered to bring back people who were in the original stage production, which we did with about half of them were able to come back and interested. And that was really exciting to have them come back to the show and people I know. I mean, I also put out and asked to everyone who was in the three seasons of Fall of the House of Sunshine, if they wanted a role in the show, we will find at least something for them if they were interested. And we did offer a small stipend to everybody. It depended on the size of the role, but we, you know, we feel it's important to, to pay your actors and to, to pay people at least something for their time and for their talent, which is very important. And I think, you know, the diversity of voices is great, too, to just help differentiate it. It's fun to do doubling also, but it's also easier, I think, for the audience that they hear different kind of voices coming through, and then they know these are different people, and it helps ground the characters, and you can really play around with that. And honestly, we had so many people send in auditions and send in stuff, I wish we could have had even more people, but there's so many people out there who want to work, who want to do things, who are who are fun. And it was a mix of reaching out to people I knew, reaching out to people the director knew, and reaching out just to totally new people because we also just wanted to widen the net as wide as possible and just work with new people, especially for smaller roles in the beginning. All right, let's move on to our third and final clip of the episode. Here, one of the main characters is alone in her greenhouse having some Alone time, let's say, with her plants. Mad props, by the way, for coining the phrase coniferous coitus. Love it. And then suddenly her her rivals, uh, the blowhole gang, arrive. Let's play it. Back at the greenhouse, post-coniferous coitus, Anne just strokes the trunk of a palm tree. You've got branches in all the right places, and Who's there? Show yourselves. I defeated a mummy. Oh, a whole mummy. Well, I hope you held on to those bandages. You're gonna need them. Show yourself. Ahoy! We're the Blowhole Gang. We heard you've been asking around. Now we're here. But this ain't a social call. Get her! (laughs) Come on, get her! Hey, that hand ain't a hand! It's ironwood. The hardest wood used to make a prosthetic currently allowed by law. Informative and annoying. Well... You're still no match for one on three. Try me. Look out for that head. Don't let her get you. Come on. You've tried me. See? Sheer numbers beats a one-armed woman. Just like the Civil War. Enough now. 
Don't hurt her. Too much. <laughs> well, well. Dr. Troop. It looks like we caught you. Green-handed. <laughs> Pirate Penny. The masked leader of the blowhole gang. Oh, my reputation proceeds. I'll tear you apart. Now, now, Doctor. I'd hate to resort to drastic measures. Leave that daisy alone. Oh, these leaves pull off so easily. Oh. I want to talk about how you depicted the action in the scene, because that's always a challenge, right? Since, since this show is all about unpacking the creative process, I'd like you to talk for a moment about what went into that, and I counted these, 26-second fight scene. <laughs> a lot of that was in the direction and the sound design. When we had done it on stage, of course, we had a whole choreographed scene that we couldn't do. So I was thinking about what is interesting for an audience and how do you put very sort of visual things in the podcast and let the audience backfill a lot of it, right? And letting the audience do the work of sort of theater of the mind and again, letting less do more in a way, right? It's it's one thing to say like, oh, I got hit or, oh, they're kicking me. But if you just sort of have those sounds and you sort of let Again, letting the designer sort of choreograph it in their head of like, what is happening? What are the movements here? And what do we need to get across? When some of the scenes, some of the fight scenes in the show are a little more silly, so they do play around more with sort of like narrating what's happening to them as it's happening. But this one's a little more dark and has more ominous tones to it. So we want, you know, again, playing with tone and laying the music and the sound sort of carry it and letting the audience sort of imagine what's happening and then overlaying it and sort of uh, like cutting it and like sort of piercing it too with like the jokes of like putting in the drama and then undercutting the drama and then sort of building it up. And I think to me, what's always important is in, in a comedy, the stakes still have to be real to the characters. And that's sort of the balance of how it works, where it's funny to us, but to them, it's always serious. And to them, it's always dangerous, even when it's that seems like a completely absurd danger of like this gang of weird eyepatch wearing thugs and pirate penny is masked leader but to Angus, this is a real fight and there are real stakes for her because i think you lose the tension if it to her if she knows there's no stakes to it or to the blowhole gang there's no stakes so i think always the key is even if it's completely silly and and absurd and ridiculous but to the people it's happening to it is real and vitally important and to their lives so i think that's what also helps keep the tension with it as well I would imagine with that many people, the the wrangling process to get all of those files, whether it's two lines for someone or two hours worth of tape from someone, is its own process. Now, I'm sure that every actor you had was professional and did everything exactly on time and was never delayed or or, or not, um, perhaps on that. But, you know, with, with retakes and, you know, providing edits for them to listen to and proofs, I mean, there, there must have been terabytes of data flowing back and forth. How did you manage it? Like what tools and softwares specifically, if you can talk about those a bit, how, how did you do manage to, to get that all working well? James Oliva, who did the directing, helped really oversee the audio along with uh, Jordan Stillman, who's our production manager. She really, she was the one who really like went through it and really sorted it and made sure we had from everybody. And then as we were cutting together and editing to say, like, what didn't we have from where? What did we need retakes from? But also just the fact that we did so much the pre-rehearsal with everybody, asking them very specifically for what they needed, asking for multiple takes of different things so that we had a lot of options, even right from the beginning when we were assembling. And then Martin Fowler, who's our sound engineer and sound designer, is really great too at helping to like equalize the audio, making the audio all sound the same. Because again, too, you're getting all these different 
audios of different qualities and then making them all sound alike and sound in the same room is a really tricky process. But luckily, assembling a really strong team that all knows their jobs, all works together and can do that and really works to their best abilities. Because it's definitely something I couldn't do by myself. If it was by myself, I would not be able to do this at all. So it's really, you know, the wonderful collaboration of of all the, the whole team coming together and really helping to sort it, to get it together, to edit together, to get rough assemblies, and then just really keep the process moving. And, you know, there's times when you're in the middle of it and you're just like, maybe I should just throw my hands up, walk away and go live in a log cabin somewhere off the grid and just completely forget it. But when you hear it all come together and you hear the music and you hear the sound design and you hear all the voices together and you're just like, wow, this is actually something. This is actually a show. It worked. Congratulations. <laughs> but you know, when you're in the middle of it, it is, does seem sort of this insurmountable, strange, insane thing of just why, why, why are we making this? Like, why am I putting myself through the stress and, and pain of this like process to like, to do this sort of silly, ultimately weird thing and it's you know i think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that like it hurts more not to do the art than to do it so you put up with the yeah sort of the, the stress and pain of the process because doing it ultimately is the greatest thing excellent nice to get to know you a little bit more about the show <laughs> jonathan thank you very much my friend I, this was great a big thanks to jonathan for sharing his creative process behind the landwill murders with me today You know, I'm thrilled that more people are discovering the joy that is listening to great fiction podcasts. And I'm equally thrilled that creators like Jonathan are in the game, making outstanding, entertaining content for us all to enjoy. You can get all of the current episodes of the first season of The Landwell Murders at landwellmurders.com. Or just follow the link in the episode details. I have been and shall be your host for this season, Evo Terra. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all the episodes of Three Clips on our website, threeclipspodcast.com. You can support the show by telling a few dozen of your closest friends. Again, that's threeclipspodcast.com. This episode was produced by Stuart Barefoot and edited by Jude Brewer. Theme music was created by Jude Brewer. Matt Medeiros is the executive producer of Three Clips. And if you can't get enough of me, follow me on Twitter, where I'm at EvoTerra. And if you're a serious podcaster with an interest in making podcasting better, check out my daily short-form podcast called Podcast Pontifications, which you can find at podcastpontifications.com. Three Clips is a Castos original series. You can learn more at castos.com. All of those links are in the episode details. And now, our bonus segment. Each episode, we ask our guests for a podcast they'd recommend that isn't at the top of the charts a show they'd like to show some love to. We call this segment Play It Forward. I'm going to recommend What's the Frequency, which is a sort of 40s Lynchian sort of noir piece created by James Oliva. Um, The whole first season's available. I know he's working on season two, and it's just a really fun, weird, uh, inventive piece that really plays the form and style, and the sound design's really amazing. And I don't want to say too much about it because the story is sort of a mystery. And uh, it's just a weird, interesting piece that I think is really exciting to listen to. So what's the frequency? Wherever you get your podcasts. So give it a give it a try. And that wraps up another episode of Three Clips, a Castos original hosted by me, Evo Terra. I truly believe that one of the best ways we can make podcasting better is by understanding what goes on inside the heads of our fellow podcasters. 
Thanks for joining me this season. Cheers.